Our Father in heaven, praise be your name for this beautiful Sabbath day, for waking us up and giving this lease on life, wherein we can learn to be holy as you are holy. But Father, we have a problem. We are not holy. We're sinful. We're spiritually dead. We need the Holy Spirit. May the same inspiring Holy Spirit who inspired the writers of old, may He come and dwell not only in this room, but in our hearts. May He quicken us. May He give us life. And may He be the instructing Spirit. Father, give us ears to listen with and hearts to comprehend the great and deep truths and mysteries that you have in store for us. Father, hide me, empty me, and let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and Redeemer, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And let me just ask you very briefly, what have we been studying all quarter long? Okay, I'm hearing a smattering of responses. I heard fruits of the Spirit. I heard someone say fruit of the Spirit. We're going to be clarifying that here shortly. But turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to be starting actually from verse 18. Galatians chapter 5, verse 18. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. You can follow along in your Bible. Galatians chapter 5, verse 18 through 23, it says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, peace or gentleness. What, what did you say? Meekness. Okay, gentleness or temperance or self-control. How many fruit of the Spirit, how many fruits of the Spirit are there? Okay, how many believe it's nine? Let me see some hands. Okay, just a few of you. I heard, I heard a few more voices than the hands I see. Boy, are you, guys, are you guys having a hard time stretching? Come on, how many believe there are nine fruits? Okay. Those of you who aren't raising your hands, why? Why aren't you raising your hands? 
Oh, there's only one. How do you know that? Huh? Oh, it's not plural, it says fruit. So the plural of fruit is? The plural of fruit, if you look in the English dictionary, it tells us is what? Are you sure? Wait, so do we have a mistranslation here? Fruit is plural in the English language. Did you know that? Fish is an example of the same kind of word. You can say fish to refer to one fish, or you can say fish to refer to all the fishes in the sea, right? Fruit is the exact same thing. In the Greek, the word that's translated fruit, in the Greek it's also singular and plural in that same word form. Did you know that? But so those of you who are saying there are nine, you're convinced because you counted nine here, right? But there are some of you who are saying there's only one. And I'm asking again, how do you know it's only one? The fruit what? What's that word? Is. Ah. Have you ever heard, you probably have, they is. Have you heard people talk like that? No. Does that make sense though? Grammatically, is that correct? No. So in other words, the word is is a what, what? Singular verb, that's right. So we know contextually by looking here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, that the fruit of the Spirit is. Huh. Is means one. He is. You say they are. So if this was definitely nine fruits, it would have said, the fruits of the Spirit are. But yet, the pen of inspiration here records that the fruit of the Spirit is. is. So how many fruit are we talking about? One. So then how do you account for the nine? They all what? They all grow on the same tree? Sister, I thought we said it was one fruit. It's like grapes? All right. Friends, you got to like stretch your mind out beyond the borders of Oregon. Like maybe sunny California, even as far as Florida. Orange. When you open up an orange, what do you have? Slices or sections, whatever you want to call them, right? Segments, all right. I'm, I'm good with that. And this, think of the fruit of the Spirit as an orange. And when you unpeel the orange, what do you get? Nine sections, segments, nine slices. So, here's the question. How many of you have the fruit of the Spirit? Okay, people are very tentative with their hands. Why? Because you know what you're thinking? You know what? I do manifest joy, love, peace, but man, when it comes to long-suffering, boy! Especially, you know, in rush hour traffic and that person cuts you off. Or it's almost Sabbath and your kids are still not picking up. You know what I mean? Wait, so what would happen if I had eight slices 
of the same order, eight segments of the orange, but I was missing one. Would I have indeed the fruit of the Spirit? Yes or no? Yes or no? All right, I'm going to do hands again. How many of you say yes? Okay, how many of you say no? People can manifest certain segments of the orange. But if you don't have the whole orange, do you have an orange? No. Powerful. Think about it. But, 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 Jed, wait a minute. I have eight. If you offend in one point of the law, you have transgressed them all. Friends, the slices or the segments of the orange is not something I produce myself. Whose fruit is it? It says it's the fruit of the Spirit. So is it my fruit? So how do I obtain this fruit then? I need to have the Holy Spirit. And if, can I have eight-ninths of the Holy Spirit? Either you have Him or you don't. That's why if you have Him, guess what you're going to bear in your life? You're going to bear His fruit. If you don't have Him in your life, Try it. You might, you might be able to get one or two or three. Now, I don't think any of us here can honestly claim we have all eight of the nine, right? I was just using that as a, an extreme here. But we might be able to get four or five things that look like the slices of the orange, but in fact, we probably have something like a tangelo or something. <laughs> See... You have to understand that the fruit of the Spirit is singular, and you either have it or you don't. Now, the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary echoes this thought. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is that which naturally develops in the life when the Spirit has control. The results of such control stand in marked contrast with the works of the flesh. Why did we start reading from verse 18? Let's go back there and look. It says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And then in verse 19, it says, now the what? Is this singular or plural? How do you know? Oh, just because it has an S on the end of it? That's right. If you look at the verb, it says, now the works of the flesh... Are you know by the verb that the works are that means the work itself is plural. So, how many works of the flesh are listed? You don't have to count them, okay? We know there are more than nine, right? Okay, let me ask you this how many of those numerous things do, must I do in order to do the works of the flesh? One. Only one. You see the contrast? With the fruit of the Spirit, either I have all the slices or I don't. 
But with the works of the flesh, I can only just be doing one of them and I'm fulfilling the works of the flesh. Bible commentary again, it says, The fruit of the Spirit is not the natural product of human nature, but of a power wholly outside of man. Attention may be called to the fact that the fruit, the word fruit, is in the singular, whereas the word works is plural. There is but one fruit of the Spirit, and that one fruit includes all the Christian graces enumerated in verses 22 and 23. In other words, all of these graces are to be present in the life of the Christian, and it cannot be said that he is bearing the fruit of the Spirit if one is missing. We just covered that, right? On the other hand, there are many forms in which evil may manifest itself. And it is necessary for only one of the evil traits listed in verses 19 to 21 to be present in the life for a man to be classified with those who produce the works of the flesh. Now, when's the last time any of us participated in any orgies? When's the last time any of us participated in drunkenness? When's the last time any one of us participated in sorcery or idolatry? You think, ah, oh, I'm good. I'm not on any of those there. But friends, there are many things listed here. Fits of anger, jealousy, dissension, division. Does it sound like your church? Does it sound like your home? Do any of these conditions sound like you? So friends, what this is actually teaching us is either you have the fruit of the Spirit or you're manifesting the works of the flesh. It's a very stark contrast. In law school, they teach you, they promote this idea of pluralism. Depending on your case, your professor will tell you, you argue for, you argue against. You're stuck with it. And no matter what your personal beliefs might be about the situation, you have to represent your client. And this whole world actually, in fact, is steeped in this thought that you can have many different ways to arrive at truth. You can have, in fact, there are many nowadays who are saying there's not even just one truth, there are many truths. Remember, Jesus Christ himself said what? I am the way, the truth, right? He never said a truth. He said the truth. To be the truth is mutually uh, it's, it's, it's exclusive of all others. So if he is the truth and he is the way, how many other ways are there? He said no one can come to the Father except through him, right? Okay. We have been so conditioned to think that there are many different ways and avenues to arrive at truth. But what this is teaching us here is actually, it's not a bunch of grays out there. The Bible gospel message is clearly, yes, 
or no? Black or white? Right or wrong? Life or death? Existent or non-existent? It's very stark. And for, for most of us, it's an affront to how we've been culturally indoctrinated. You and I, we, we prefer the colorful languages of political correctness. But the Bible stands in stark contrast to the world. Because anyone who has the love of the Father doesn't have the love of the world. But if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. It's the same stark contrast. We're going to be developing that here in a little bit. It takes all the Christian graces to make a man a true follower of Christ, but only one of the works of the flesh to make a man a follower of the evil one. I praise God for our Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary. It is an incredible, incredible tool for Bible study. And friends, we just talked about just the theme of the quarter. We're going to start the lesson study now. <laughs> I asked you just a moment ago, how many memorize the memory verse and nobody raised their hand? So we're going to just turn to the memory verse, okay? It's in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. It says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentile, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, when I was going over this quarterly, which incidentally was written a little over a year ago, okay? Look at our theme. Awaken hope. Who is this hope? Jesus Christ, where? In you. Has Christ awakened inside of you? And in order to talk about this, we're going to be looking at the life of Moses. And for those of you who are here for this morning's devotions, guess who was talked about? Moses. You ever find that to be peculiar? Did Boris know about all of this? Did I know about all of this? Did the Sabbath school quarterly people know about this? Did... Did OYC know about how all of these things are talking about the same things? Isn't it beautiful how God can work in such a multifaceted way? Yes. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In the King James it says, God would make known. It's actually better translated, God willed to make known. He purposed for it to be known. It is His desire for it to be known. What does He want known? Huh? Okay, but look at the text. What did He desire to be known? The riches of glory. What is the riches of glory? What is glory, by the way? 
Okay, someone from the back says God's character. For us to understand God or the word glory, we're going to have to, yes, look at God's character, but we're going to be looking in Exodus. But before you turn there, let me give you this thought. What, it was God's plan that His people should penetrate deeply into the mysteries of divine knowledge by the help of the Holy Spirit. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Friends, we are where we're at in our point in history because we are not people of the Word. We are not studying deeply the Word. We're surface readers. See, Calvin didn't even know how this was all going to come together either. In turn, when we receive the revelation of the Holy Spirit, God will transform our very dispositions so that saintly characters will result. This is what this passage is talking about, our memory verse. So, we're going to define what glory is, and for us to do that, we're going to have to turn to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Exodus chapter 33, starting from verse 18, we'll read to 23. It says, Moses said, please show me your glory. How many, what's, when's the last time you talked to God? Today? Right now? All right. When's the last time you've asked him to show me your glory, God? Last week. Well, praise God. Don't you think this is a very impetuous request? Do you know or did you think that Mo Moses knew what he was asking for? Now, the reason I'm asking you this question is because what did God say to him? Let's just skip down uh, in verse 20. And he, God is speaking to Moses after he gets that request. He says, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Moses was basically saying, I have a death wish. I want to see your glory. Think about it. His state of being was one where if God revealed his glory to the fullest, he would expire. Are you and I like that? And yet, do we have the courage to ask like Moses did? Lord, show me your glory. You know, sometimes I think we're more like our parents, Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3.8, they hid themselves. It's interesting when you look at the book of Genesis, in fact, I always maintain all the doctrines of our church, all the doctrines of the Bible are contained in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. If you have something that you believe in that you cannot find in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, bye-bye, throw it out. Your doctrine, your foundational basis of your faith needs to be predicated 
on the foundational premise of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And in there we find that in there we find the very first picture of God we get is God as creator. The very next picture of God that we get is in chapter 3 and it's God presented as a God presented as a judge. What was happening to Adam and Eve? They were going through the investigative judgment. And they did what in verse 8? They hid themselves. Are we like Adam and Eve or are we going to be like Moses? Because what was God out to do during the investigative judgment? Was he there to throw down thunderbolts and burn them to ashes right then and there? No, he was trying to reconcile with them. That message, my friends, is telling us that the investigative judgment is a reconciliation process and that you and I have nothing to fear. Amen. But we better be wearing the right clothes, right? <laughs> Dress reform found in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> Diet reform. <gasps> Are you kidding me? The Sabbath, state of the dead. You see how this is going? Moses felt that there would be a strength in him if he could just partake even a glimpse of God's glory. You and I need to be as impetuous or bold as Moses. We need to pray daily, Father, reveal your glory to me. Even though I may expire at the sight of your glory, but Father, slay me so that Christ can live. This is the message of Moses here in verse 18. In verse 19, and he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. Now I have to give you a digression here. In your Bible there, look at the word Lord. Do you notice anything unusual about it? They're all caps. What does that signify? It signifies Jehovah. Okay. How many of you knew that? Okay, a few of you. For those of you who've never heard this before, if you look in your English Bibles, particularly the King James and some of the other translations, they have this convention. If it's not using the biblical names in the, in the text, it will use the word Lord with just the L capitalized, with lowercase o-r-d, or it will use all caps L-O-R-D. There's a difference. In the Hebrew, you have the word Adonai, which is the word Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. You have the word Elohim, which has been translated God, or more accurately, God's, because it's a plural word in the English language. But then you also have four letters known as a tetragrammaton, which people really don't know how to pronounce, but most people guess, and it's probably an accurate guess, that it's pronounced Yahweh. Okay? 
It's transli transliterated in English as Jehovah. Now, I don't know how you get that, but English is kind of like that, okay? The word Jehovah, you'd be surprised to know, occurs over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. Did you know that? How many times? More than 6,500 times, whereas the word God or Elohim only appears 2,605 times. And yet, we refer to God liberally as God. And we don't actually call him by his name, which is Jehovah or Yahweh. Why am I making this distinction? The word Jehovah appears three times as much as the word Elohim. Here's the reason why. Does anyone know what the word Jehovah means? The self-existent one. You know this because if you go to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God is again speaking to our favorite character of the day, Moses. And he said to him, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, Hayah has sent me to you. The word Hayah literally means to exist, to be. In our substance and evidence class, we're talking about the existence of God. And that all matter in this universe, scientific knowledge, had to come from somewhere. There is not any material thing in the universe that existed without a cause. But yet here we know and discover who is the uncaused cause. And that is... Yahweh. Why? Because Hayah, I am, or to exist, literally means that Yahweh, Hayah, Yahweh, that's where it comes from, means self-existent one. You know, you go to church and you sing the hymn, Holy, 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 right? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Why do we sing that? Why is God holy? Does anyone know what the word holy means, by the way? Huh? God, okay, God-like. What is it about God that makes Him holy? Okay, holy literally means different, separated, unique, set apart. It's like sanctified. How is God different from you and me? All of you have parents? Yeah, I hope you do, right? You all have parents, right? In other words, you got your life from someone else. What about God? He was self-existent, which means He is life underived. He is life itself. This is why He is holy. Isn't it a wonderful call? Be holy like your Father in heaven is holy. God wants us to be like Him. Amen. Going back to Exodus chapter 33. I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Moses asked, God, show me your glory. And Jesus, or God, said to him, 
I will show you my goodness and will tell you my name. What is the glory of God? It's His name. Now, how is this character? Well, we lose that connection because in the English, when you, uh, the word character and name have kind of drifted apart. But you've heard the expression, go and make a name for yourself, right? That's what name we're talking about here. The name of God, when you go make a name for yourself, you are building up your what? Reputation. Your reputation is based upon your character or your name, who you are. In other words, it's literally who you are. So when God says, or when Moses said, show me your glory, God responded, says, okay, I will tell you my reputation. I will tell you my name. I will tell you who I am. And that is how we understand that this is his character. If you jump to the next chapter in chapter 34 of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 34, starting from verse 5, you'll see that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, uh, Elohim, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And in verse 8, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. I try to do that in one breath because it almost seems like you kind of have to with that passage, right? That is the description of God's name or his character or his reputation. Are you glad that God is a forgiving God? Are you glad that he demonstrates mercy to you and me? Are you glad that he has steadfast love and faithfulness? What should our response be? What did Moses do? He quickly bowed his head toward the earth. That literally means he did this. He prostrated himself. His head hit the ground. How many of us, when we hear this, wow, we start standing up. Remember the conversion of Saul? Where did he end up? In the dust. Here's a spiritual lesson. When we come face to face with God's character, you and I will recognize that we are but dust and we become dust. This is the only way the Holy Spirit can come quicken us and revive us to allow His fruit to be demonstrated in our lives. Now, I'll give you a little bit more etymology here. You know the word humble? You know where that word comes from? Okay, humble. It comes from the old word hummus. Not the thing you dip with your chip. <laughs> but it's, how many of you garden? Okay, you know that 
dark, fluffy, rich soil. What do you refer to that? Hummus. The word humility came from dirt. True biblical humility is to recognize that I am nothing but dirt and God is my creator. Why? Because as in Genesis 2 it told us that God formed man from the dirt of the ground and breathed into him through his nostrils the breath of life. When I come face to face with that fact, with the realization that God is the creator God who formed me from dirt, I will do as Moses did and my head will hit the ground. So this is how we see Moses' request being fulfilled. Our lesson for this week was talking about the Christian character. The Christian character is nothing more than another word for God's character. Because God wants His character reproduced in your and my life. The question is, are we letting Him? Or am I trying to push those fruits out? (laughs) It takes a person fully dead, fully recognizing that he is dust of the ground, You've heard the expression, right? Resurrection power does not, come to the, does not come to anyone except those who are dead. Have you died to self today? Have I crucified myself in Christ today? What, it is, what is it that is the character of Christ? Well, for us to understand that, we'd have to obviously look at whom? Jesus Christ. Tell me, friends, why did Jesus come to this planet? Okay, why did he come? For sake of time, you can write these verses down. Uh, I'm going to read them to you, all the verses. If you want them, you can write them down right now. Matthew 5, 17. Matthew 9, 13. Matthew 10.34, Matthew 10.35, Luke 12.49, Luke 12.51, Luke 22.27, John 10.10, John 14.18. I'll go over one more time. Matthew 5.17, Matthew 9.13, Matthew 10.34, Matthew 10.35, Luke 12.49, Luke 12.51, Luke 22.27, John 10.10, John 14.18. And we'll cover those very briefly here. Matthew 5, 7, Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law. In Matthew 9, 13, he says, I have come to call sinners to repentance. In Matthew 10, 34, he says, I am come not to send peace, but to bring a sword. Matthew 10, 35, I have come to set at variance, a person variance with his family members. Interesting. Luke 12, 49, I have come to send fire. Luke 12, 51, I have come to give division. Luke twenty two twenty seven. I have come to serve. Luke 10, John 10, 10, I have come to give life more abundantly. John 14, 18, I have come to comfort. But if you look at 
the phrases that Jesus says and, and, and see what he says more often when he says, I have come, I come, I come. He says, I have come, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. This phrase is repeated more often than those other phrases. You will find those saving the lost in Matthew 18.11, Luke 9.56, Luke 19.10, Matthew 20.28, and Mark 10.45. All of these talk about Christ's mission to come and save humanity. So, what was the primary purpose of Christ coming to this planet? To save humanity. What was the outgrowth of Christ's character that was demonstrated here on this planet? He came to... It's the same answer, friends. He came to save others. That was the outgrowth of his mission here. That's what was demonstrated to people. He showed that he wanted to save people. Why? Because that was his mission. So his mission to save people was an outgrowth of his character. He wanted to save people. If that is the essence of Christ's character, and we want to have Christ's like character, what do you suppose the essence of our lives should be? To answer the phone? <laughs> or what? To save others. Ellen White tells us, Testimonies of the Church, Volume 3. I confess, I have not read all of them yet. How many of you have, though? Okay, a few of you. It's testimonies to the whom? Am I a part of that church? Whose testimonies are they? It's the testimonies of Jesus, right? So how come I'm not reading them? Lord, forgive me. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 466. You should get rid of your cold, formal, or, sorry, let me start over. You should get rid of your cold, frozen formality as soon as possible. Sounds like it's talking to me. You need to cultivate feelings of tenderness and friendliness in your everyday life. You should exhibit true courtesy and Christian politeness. The heart that really loves Jesus loves those for whom he died. Now, I know you're saying amen, amen, and you're being convicted about some things, but I want to show you how far-reaching this is. You know the bum that you pass by that's at the corner light with a little sign? Did Christ die for that person? then I'm counseled to love that person too? What about the person that's beating up on my sister? I heard less response there. You saw the looks on your face. It was pretty amusing. I'm showing you how radical this call is. What did we as humanity, what did we do to Christ? Did we just kill him? Come on, friends. The 
crucifixion process was an art. The Romans perfected the science of crucifixion that they learned from the Greeks. Crucifixion was not intended to kill. It was intended to humiliate. We have this pristine, laundried, clean picture of what Christ went through on that cross. But in reality, what really took place is he was probably stark naked on that tree. History tells us that the longest person on a cross was on the cross for nine days. By that time, birds of prey will start coming and eating out your eyes. They do this because they want to humiliate you. So was Jesus just killed? No. Philippians tells us that he humbled himself to death, but not just any death. He died the, he died the disgusting death of the cross. Who did this to him? We did. And yet he loved us. Yet he loved us. Someone who was willing to humiliate him and crucify him. He still loved me. And he wants you and me to have that same kind of love for others. The thing is, we don't have that kind of love, do you? Do I? Do you? Do we naturally, intrinsically, inherently have that kind of love for others? How then can I get that kind of love? What are we talking about all quarter long? I must manifest the fruit of the Spirit. How do I manifest the fruit of the Spirit? I must have the Holy Spirit resurrect me from my death. How can the Holy Spirit resurrect me from my death? I need to die. Friends, the only way you and I will be able to demonstrate this kind of compassion for others is when I fully die in Christ. I know Sabbath school is, is a time for discourse and learning and studying, but we need to be inspired. We need to be inspired to be like Christ. We're too caught up in loving myself. God knew this. That's why he said, you need to love your neighbor as you do love yourself. <laughs> Self is such a strong dictator in my life. And yet, I'd rather sometimes, for some reason, somehow, I'd rather serve self. When God says, I'm going to set you free, as was sung earlier. I'm going to give you new life. You don't have to struggle anymore. I will sustain you so you will not fall. Do you believe what God said? Or are you like, oh yeah, God, I know that's what I'm reading here. But... Romans 5 tells us that God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In our high calling, page 198, it tells us 
The character of the Christian is to be a reproduction of the character of Christ. The same love, the same grace, the same unselfish benevolence seen in Christ's life is to characterize the lives of his followers. Let me read that one more time. The character of the Christian is to be a reproduction of the character of Christ. The same love, the same grace, the same unselfish benevolence. Wait, how do you become unselfish? Self needs to die, right? The same unselfish benevolence seen in his life is to characterize the lives of his followers. She also writes, The converting power of God must work a transformation of character in many who claim to believe the present truth, or they cannot fulfill the purpose of God. Wow. They are hearers, but not doers of the word. Pure, unworldly benevolence will be developed in all. Developed in how many? All. In all who make Christ their personal Savior. There needs to be far less of self and more of Jesus. I'm going to close with this quote. We were talking about this late last night. In manuscript number 24, 1903, Ellen White writes, We must be co-workers with Christ. Remember what was Christ's work? What was his mission? What was his character? To save others. We must be co-workers with Christ if we would see our efforts crowned with success. We must weep as he wept for those who would not weep for themselves and plead as he pled for those who will not plead for themselves. There are many out there, friends, who are not weeping. There are many out there who are not even pleading. They don't even know how to plead. They don't even know whom to plead. But yet you and I, when we develop the character of Christ, we see those people and we have a natural urge, a natural inclination to go save them. Even to the point of losing my own salvation. Remember what Moses said? Let my name be blotted out of the book, but please save your people. Paul even said, let me be accursed for the sake of my brethren. Jesus himself said, I will die so that others may live. This is the demonstration, the perfect epitome of God's character. And this is the high calling that you and I have this morning. We need to awaken Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so the message of the Oregon Youth for Christ's first conference, Awaken Hope, is challenging you this Sabbath school morning to completely die to Christ. Die in Him so that His Holy Spirit can resurrect you. That the fruit of that Spirit, how many fruit? One. How many slices? How many, if you have them, you got to have them all, right? 
So that fruit will be manifest in my life. And when that fruit is manifest in my life, I will naturally hunger for souls. I will naturally weep for those who will not weep. I will naturally plea for those who will not plea. Do you want to make that kind of a commitment here this morning? Do you want to dedicate your life, your whole, every fiber of your being to be like the character of Christ? then I want to ask you to humble yourselves before our God and our awesome Creator as we approach Him in prayer. Father God, mercy, Forgive us. We are so unworthy. We realize this is your holy Sabbath day, but the recognition of the fact that we are not an ounce of holiness looms over our heads. So how, as we, an unholy people, keep your Sabbath day holy? Father, teach us to die. Teach us to ask for you to show us your glory. Help us to come to the point that Moses did, to be sprawled on the ground and recognize that we are nothing but hummus and that you are our creator, Jehovah God. You are the one who can create in us a new life and you will be the one who will empower us to live this new life in Jesus Christ. Father, we want to go home. We want to be with you. But yet we realize we have been irresponsible. Chastise us. Convict us. Help us to recognize the the times when we don't let self die. Prune us. Refine us so that truly the character of Christ can blossom in our lives as the fruit of the Spirit. May He inspire our words, our thoughts, our actions, so that we may truly be about our Father's business. Father, we thank You for the assurance that You will sustain us, that You will impart new life to us, We claim these promises and we ask again for the Holy Spirit to manifest His fruit in our lives. For we ask this in the most worthy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.